0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the first time in years, there's evidence that the Liberals could be serious contenders in Ontario again. Are they back in the race? Well, we'll talk about that. Long-term care has received not just one, but two damning reports in less than a week. How many times does the government need to be told how bad things are until they do something about it? And U.S. President Joe Biden has been in office for only 100 days, but his Bidenomics could change America and Canada, too. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, interesting statistics when we start looking at what's happening here in the province of Ontario, and I, uh, there's so many things, of course, with long-term care, uh, with the vaccination program, but what happens here at the same time, of course, is this polling about, you know, who's winning and who's losing and who the people of Ontario are leaning towards right now. Because let's not forget, uh, there is an election coming up next year, about a year from now, actually, about 14 months from now. And amazingly enough, uh, there's been a shift in the polling. Uh, Steve Paken writes about it. Uh, you can see it on the webpage, tvo.org, of course. always some fascinating blogs from Steve Paken, and he joins us the host of The Agenda on TVO, is with us right now on The Bill Callis Show. Uh, Steve, good morning. Thanks so much for your time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Bill, it has been too long since I last heard your voice uh, one-on-one. I hear you on the radio, of course, but one-on-one like this. A delight to be back with you.
0: Good to have you with us. And before we get into anything about politics, uh, congratulations, Grandpa.
1: <laughs> How do you know?
0: Oh, come on. I, I, you know what? I, your mom and dad probably put it on Facebook. I think I, that was the picture I saw anyway. And I saw some um, of the stuff you did. Anyway, congratulations. That, that's great news. I mean, makes you feel just a little bit old but a lot proud. More proud, doesn't it?
1: it, it more proud than old and and uh, t- like to me the great thing is my pa- I've always known my parents were were great grandparents, which they have been to seven kids over the last uh, many many years, but now they actually are great grandparents, which is pretty amazing.
0: Well, congratulations to the whole Bacon family and to you and to Zach and everybody else. And It's just a great, great uh, situation for you guys. Let's talk about uh, what's going on politically here. Great piece here. It's, by the way, the title of the piece here is, Are the Ontario Liberals Back? Well, are they, Steve?
1: That is yet to be determined. I think you can certainly say they are more in the game now than they ever have been over at any point in the last many years. Uh, I don't think I have to remind your listeners that in the 2018 election, the Liberals suffered their worst defeat ever. We're talking about in more than 150 years of Canada. The Liberal Party has never been punished in the way that it was in that last election. And they have been uh, in pretty miserable condition in terms of public opinion ever since. Well, as we know, Bill, governments um, aren't necessarily elected. They tend to defeat themselves first. Mm -hmm. And the current provincial government is having some difficulty, as we all know. And as a result, it looks like, based on polling, that the electorate is kicking the tires of the other parties. And at the moment, uh, after the Conservatives, who were in first place in pretty much all the polling for the last three years, for the first time, they're not. The, The two most recent polls that have come out have shown that the Liberals under Stephen Del Duca are now the first place choice now. You pointed out, 13 months before an election, so don't anybody get too excited but the fact that they're in first place suggests that people are giving them a second look in a way that they certainly weren't at any other time over the last four years.
0: But there's an interesting twist to this, too, that you pointed out in the piece. Uh, if, in fact, that were to happen, and, and I agree with you, I mean, 13, they say a week is a, a lifetime in politics, so there's a lot of weeks left and a lot of lifetimes before the, the, we go to the polls in Ontario. But it seems as if, in, at least in this polling anyway, Steve, they've leapfrogged over the NDP, and not for the first time.
1: That is one of the things I find most curious. It it, it doesn't surprise me at all that a government that feels itself a bit under fire right now uh, on a variety of fronts for a variety of reasons may have experienced some slippage in the polls. What surprises me is the NDP is the official opposition in Ontario right now. They've got 40 seats. They're only, what, 23 seats shy of being able to form their own majority government. Uh, They were in first place in the polls for a short while during the 2018 election campaign. So clearly, a lot of people were considering or looking at, you know, the expression I like, kicking the tires of the NDP during that campaign. And ultimately, they didn't make it all the way, but they came a pretty close second. Okay, here we go. Fast forward three years, and the NDP is back in its traditional third-place position at its traditional polling levels, which are anywhere from between 20 and 25%. Last poll I saw had them at 23 and I find that very curious. For whatever reason, the antipathy towards the current government of the day uh, is not being rewarded to the NDP, but rather the liberals who've leapfrogged over them and are now in first place.
0: There's another cliche that I know we tend to use uh, as pundits here, but, you know, it'd be a, t- a, a party goes into the penalty box. I mean, you know, it happened to the Paul Martin liberals in 5 06, I guess, during that election. certainly happened to Kathleen Wynne and the Ontario liberals. if uh, there's an argument to be made that the NDP have been in the penalty box in Ontario since 1995.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that, actually, Bill. I, I You know, you can accuse me of being a little too... Uh, deeply entrenched in history, and I'll probably plead guilty to that. But the reality is we've had 42 elections in Ontario history, 42. And 40 of them have been won by either a party calling itself some form of liberal or some form of conservative. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's only two elections out of 42 uh, that it hasn't been one of those two parties. Uh, The NDP, of course, as you mentioned, in 1990. And then you've got to go all the way back to the 1920s when the United Farmers of Ontario won an election. And that was in the middle of the Great Depression, and therefore people were looking for something completely different. You know, it's reasonable, I think, to conclude from that, 40 out of 42 elections going either liberal or conservative, it's reasonable to conclude that the NDP traditionally is never really thought of as an option for government unless things get Completely out of whack, as they did in 1990, right? Yeah, that was the political. That
0: was the political perfect storm. They were ticked off at David Peterson, and and the conservatives were kind of in the political wilderness at that time. Was Frank Miller still the leader then?
1: No, it was Mike Harris at that point. In
0: 1990. Yep. Okay, Uh, but who knew who just
1: won the election? Okay, that's right. And who knew?
0: And who knew who he was at that point?
1: Nobody. He'd won the he'd won the leadership convention in I think of April 1990. And David Peterson then decided to go to the polls in um, September of 1990. So he'd barely been leader for a few months when the election campaign was called. And you're quite right. And then, remember, the Tories had been in power for 42 straight years. They've been out of power for five. People weren't ready to put them back in. They were mad at David Peterson for the early election call, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the perfect storm for the NDP. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need a perfect storm. History suggests you need a perfect storm if the public are going to vote for something that isn't liberal or isn't conservative. You had the perfect storm with the Great Depression in the 1920s. You had the perfect storm in 1990. Do we have a perfect storm coming up in 2022? I don't know. We'll see. But that's when the next election is.
0: But the interesting part about this, as you mentioned, is uh, Steve Del Duke has been the leader of the party for a little while now, but he doesn't even have a seat in the legislature, such as it is. I mean, obviously, you know, the legislature is a shadow of its former self because of the pandemic, and hopefully that's going to get turned around in the next little while. But he doesn't have that bully pulpit, that, that platform, uh, to be able to score points, yet the party seems to be moving ahead without that.
1: Well, and that's a really interesting observation. The fact is the liberals have eight seats in the legislature right now, only eight. They're not even an official party as it relates to, you know, you need 12. You need 12 to be an officially constituted party. They've only got eight. That means they miss out on millions of dollars uh, worth of extra resources uh, to do research, to hire people, etc., uh, etc. Et so they don't have that option right now. And as you point out, Del Duca himself doesn't even have a seat. So even on the days when he could go down to question period and ask a question, he can't because he doesn't have a seat. And yet... This harkens back to something Greg Lyle once told me. Greg is the head of the Innovation Research Group, Innovative Research Group, and that's a polling company. Mm -hmm. And Greg Greg is an original member of Mike Harris's Common Sense Revolution, okay? He's a conservative. And yet he says when most people in this country wake up in the morning and go look at themselves in the mirror as they get ready to either wash their face or shave or do whatever, the biggest chunk of people in this country see a liberal. So the liberals start with that built-in advantage, that they are the largest kind of chunk of the electorate. The conservatives obviously second, the NDP the third, and the Greens much further behind and fourth. If the liberals have this kind of built-in advantage, things have got to get pretty bad for that party for them to be as thrashed as badly as they were last time. But it also means that when things start to go off the rails, as they may be right now for the current government, People want to see what the liberals have on offer. And, Bill, it doesn't hurt that the federal liberals right now are in first place in the polls as it relates to the national scene. And you have to believe among those people who don't tend to make a difference or tend to see any difference between the federal party and any provincial party, you've got to believe that some of the shine from that federal party is shining off onto the provincial party and helping them as well.
0: Yeah, I, I've, look, I know that from the years that you and I have been following politics and, and you know, the odd time that I was knocking on doors with, way back when, when I was on city council. Uh, there's there's no line between federal and provincial parties when it comes to this. If they hate the liberals uh, uh, and you were running as a liberal, either federally or provincially, uh, you're going to get a, an earful when you go to the door. And, and, and that's just the way people are, I guess. So I, I can understand that, uh, that, you know, the popularity of the federal liberals is certainly going to have an impact here in Ontario, apparently not so much in Quebec these days, but it's does in the Atlantic provinces, too.
1: Yeah, and, and the other thing you've got to remember, though, about all this is that uh, in, in all of the recent polling, when they ask people, who do you think would make the best premier? This is not who would you vote for tomorrow. It's who do you think would make the best premier? The guy in first place is still Doug Ford. Yep. Now, he's not, he's not got as big a lead as he did a year ago when he had a huge lead. His numbers have certainly come down. But Ford's still in first place. Andrea Horvath is a few points back in second place. Stephen Del Duca is well back in third place. Again, lots of people still don't know who Stephen Del Duca is. Having said that, here's what I always like to remind people. In January of 1985, if you ask people who was the leader of the official opposition, his name was David Peterson, incidentally, mm-hmm. 10% of Ontarians could answer that question. 10% of Ontarians, only 10, could tell you who the opposition leader was. And yet... Six months later, that guy was premier of Ontario. And in fact, we just had the anniversary yesterday. May the 2nd, 1985, was the election where David Peterson got the most number of votes, despite the fact that five months earlier, only 10% of the people knew who he was. And yet he got the most votes on May 2nd, 1985. And seven weeks later, he was the, uh, uh, which one was he now? 20th premier of the province of Ontario. So, you know, long way to go, but it's interesting how the ground seems to have shifted a bit when it comes to the popularity of the various parties right now
0: but that seems to indicate another uh, i guess one of the uh, mores of politics is that uh, uh, we the voters tend to vote governments out not to vote them in and uh, you know they were awfully ticked off at the pcs for and and we, uh, the aforementioned frank miller that i was talking about and a couple of other things in the coalition came up but but I, I they're like that with doug ford right now but how long are their memories going to be steve
1: well you know i bob ray always had a line bill that i really liked when they when they said to Mr. Ray, you know, your polling numbers are terrible. Uh, What are you going to do about that? He'd always say, you know, polls are a great reflection of what people thought yesterday. I'm in the business of changing those poll numbers by having a better tomorrow. And that's the fact. I mean, that is the reality. All the polling that's out right now tells you what people thought a week or two ago when those polling companies were in the field. This is what people were thinking. They are not predictive. I always remind people of this. They're not predictive. The fact that the polls are where they are today, that is no indication of where they're going to be thirteen months from now, which of course, and which politician hasn't said this, the only poll that matters is the one on election day. Uh-huh. So everybody's everybody has to remember, and liberals in particular have to remember this because liberals do get arrogant. they do get cocky. They do start measuring uh, you know the curtains in the cabinet ministers offices uh, for you know what kind of uh, what size drapes we want to put up there. They've got to remember that that they've still got a long way before uh, any return to power for them. And uh, they, they ought not to get cocky. And I think they've learned, you know, many of them know that lesson from the past. There have been plenty of times when liberals looked like they were going to dance right back in. And uh, they got the shock of their lifetimes. But to circle back to the first thing you said, yes, governments defeat themselves. It's not that opposition parties tend to get elected. It's that governments defeat themselves. Doug Ford obviously has a long time yet, 13 months, in order to change the narrative here. And he's trying to do that right now. And let's face it, if, if they can get the vaccination rates up, if they can manage to open up society a little more and get us all out of lockdown where so many of us are not feeling very, you know, very bullish about our circumstances, uh, if, if all of this can change, if this third wave can get over with already and we can get into a summer where remember a year ago, Bill, we had 200 cases of COVID in the province every day. Yep. Now we're mm-hmm. up around 4,000. I mean, back then we had 200 a day. We really seemed to have the thing under control. If we can get back to those kind of numbers, there's no question in my mind that it will put some wind back in Doug Ford's sales.
0: Uh, I'm just about out of time, but just near the uh, the back end of your piece here today, uh, your history and perspective of Ontario politics comes into play here. Uh, no matter what happens, and even if Ford continues to struggle with the popular polls, uh, in Ontario we tend not to throw governments out after only one term, don't we?
1: Well, again, yes. I talked earlier about 40 out of 42 being liberal or conservative. And again, if you want to go back 154 years to 1867, you will find that only three elected premiers failed to be re-elected. Only three. Doug Ford's the 26th. We've had only three elected premiers and, okay, John S. MacDonald, the very first, and then again the head of uh, E.C. Drury, the head of the uh, United Farmers of Ontario, and Bob Ray. Those are the only three premiers who won an election and failed to be re-elected. So if you look at it that way, history's on Doug Ford's side.
0: Got a long way to go. Uh, Check it out, uh, tvo.org. you get the piece. And uh, you can always watch, Steve, of course, The Agenda with Steve Paikin on TVO. Always a pleasure, Steve. Congratulations once again, and uh, all the best to the family. We'll talk again soon.
1: Thanks so much, Bill. Great talking to you.
0: Take care. Steve Paikin, of course, host of The Agenda on TVO. (laughs) You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was late Friday afternoon that uh, yet another report came out about the, uh, well, miserable conditions in long-term care in the province of Ontario. This is the commission uh, that the province themselves had uh, tasked with the uh, whole problem of of what's gone on, especially in the first wave. And uh, it's a a very extensive study uh, with some strong accusations about the level of care or lack thereof and so many other things. Global's Dave Woodard has a lot more on this 322-page document.
1: A lack of pandemic preparedness and the poor state of the long-term care sector were apparent for many years to policymakers and for anyone who wished to see. That's how the report on the Long-Term Care Commission starts out, pointing to things like a lack of PPE, outdated and not replaced, and staff stretched thin before the pandemic had even started. The report did say that after SARS in 2003, there were plans put into place and were followed for a time, but soon the money involved in pandemic preparedness gave way to other priorities of successive governments. The report said that the second wave of the pandemic was far worse than the first, and while it's still sorting out exactly what happened, the commission says insufficient staff and aging home infrastructure issues were too deeply ingrained to overcome. Dave Woodard, Global News.
0: Well, which begs the question, I guess, about exactly what's going to happen next year, because this is not the first report that's had these sorts of horrific stories in them. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back today.
2: I always love talking to you, Bill.
0: Thank you so much. I guess my first question here, Vivian, when will the lesson be learned? How many more reports are going to have to be out here before these guys understand? By these guys, I mean the people at Queen's Park, that something has to be done.
2: I mean, like, this is the final question, right? There's, There's nothing coming down the pike. This is it. There's no more reports. There's no more analyses. This is it. The jig is up. Right now is their time to act. So we'll finally, you know, because they'll put it off, oh, we have a commission, oh, we're waiting for the results, oh, this. I mean, it is literally one scathing result after another, very clearly documenting the flagrant failure of this government to, to properly protect these residents. So, And I'm really anxious to see what Minister Fullerton says today, because she's making an appearance and doing a press conference, I believe, at 10 a.m., um, And so far to date, as you know, she has failed to accept any some sort of responsibility, failure to acknowledge any of their wrongdoings, which are very clearly articulated in, you know, 322 pages of this document. So I I don't think you can ever start to actually make amends until you first assume responsibility. And, And of course, we don't blame her for what happened for the last 20, 30 years of failed government action and underinvestment in this sector. We know that. We're, I'm, I'm looking squarely at her pandemic response, which without a doubt aggravated the level of mortality we saw. We could have saved more seniors, more persons with disabilities in these homes, and there's zero question about that. And to date, she has taken zero accountability.
0: Well, you saw her initial reaction, and not, not even to this report, but the one that was done uh, that was released last week from the Auditor General. Yeah. Uh, and her quote was, Well, we didn't start the fire. Well, maybe not, <laughs> but you didn't do anything, you stoked the flames.
2: 100%, not just that. First of all, she can't even use that line because we saw in other provinces who acted expeditiously, as the commissioners and pretty much everyone else has said, she failed to act expeditiously. People like, you know, provinces like BC, who after the very first outbreak knew that this was going to be a problem, immediately nationalized the homes, brought all the wages up to union rates, and made them the single site staffing rule. You could only work at one facility and had them all full time. For the next six months. And that's how they got through that first wave so magnificently. And we were saying, hello, model this approach. Nothing, nothing. So give me a break. And then after, you know, the people on the actual front lines, because Minister Fullerton has yet to actually step foot inside a long-term care home over the course of this pandemic, as far as we know, um, when, you know, the people, the actual heroes on the front lines, when they went and did everything they could to bring these numbers down to zero, you know, pretty much just about nine or 10, I believe, by August. We were warning them over the summer months. you got to start getting ready. You have to engage in a staffing list. You have to start beefing up IPAC in these homes. You need to look at what Quebec is doing, what BC did. You need to learn some lessons. Nothing was learned. And that's why we had an even deadlier second wave. That falls squarely on her feet. She failed to listen to all of the experts, all of the families, the advocates who were begging her, please use these summer months and do something because we know what's coming in the fall. We all knew. It was well-predicted. Nothing. So I have zero patience for her at this point.
0: Well, and, this, and she's not the only one in the focus here, too, as, you, as you've read in the report. Uh, the Commissioners also uh, talked about Dr. David Williams, who, of course, is mm. the chief medical officer of health, uh, and uh, say he was too slow to act on emerging information about COVID-19. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can remember, I think you and I had these conversations back yeah. then. Uh, Dr. Williams wasn't even sure about community spread. He, we're not sure we don't need PPE, uh, a number of different things. And I understand there was some confusion in the early days, but no. he was getting medical advice from other people in the science yeah. table well to act on this right now and he, he wouldn't
2: no the, pro- the best example i'm sorry but i don't buy a thing that dr david williams says and he should have resigned a long time ago if he had any you know dignity as with dr. minister fullerton what what shows you that they knew this was a problem for everyone else but didn't care to do anything about long-term care was that his directive you know allowed hospitals to begin universal masking on march 24th he did not put a directive for long-term care until april 9th so give me a break Give me a break. You neglected the, the, the sector that arguably needed universal masking before anyone, before anyone. So give, I, I just know it doesn't add up. None of their actions add up. They went out of their way to focus on, on, on hospital and acute care, and they completely ignored long term care. And they're all complicit.
0: Well, and, and of course this commission got an awful lot of depositions from people that not just that uh were you know had family there but also from a lot of the people that work in there and and to your point though doctor i mean the, the commission said that they, they had some people actually explaining some of the staff that they were yep. using empty pop bottles and plastic yep. bags due to makeshift ppe yep. because there was nothing available
2: i mean it's so horrifying and you know they knew this they also knew that you know in dr david williams testimony which was bar none the most bombshell report i've ever read in my life i i don't know how he wasn't forced out uh, after that testimony you know admitting that he knew workers in long-term care were going to work sick but they refused to do anything about it like uh, i don't know provide paid sick leave because that's why they were going to work sick we even saw that confirmed yesterday in a, in a, in a fantastic piece global music for tender care um it's just abhorrent and um I mean, at what point do you say, like, enough is enough? Something has to be done. Like, heads have to rule. Where's the accountability? Where's the justice for these families? It's just there, there is none to date, none.
0: And, and I, you know, we can look at this. We can put the Auditor General's report on this, and, and there have been other reports such as do the Independent Commission uh, with uh, some of the public hearings that they've had on this. It's not as if there isn't a body of information out here for them to act on.
2: No. There's a lot. They know it needs to be done. I mean, two of the main things that they can do right now, they can do this tomorrow. There are bills in the legislature that are waiting to be passed, but that the Ford government refuses to pass. The Time to Care Act, which legis- would legislate, this was posed by N- the NDP, uh, MPP, Teresa Armstrong, which would legislate the care standard, the four-hour care standard now, right now, which is so desperately needed and which would provide the, put the onus on the majority for-profit homes to have to hire more staff to get to that level. So they don't even have to spend money on that. They don't even have to. Like, that, that's, that's such an easy fix that they could do tomorrow if they wanted to, in addition to making those, you know, pandemic pay increases permanent because those, gonna, those are set to expire at the end of June. And you better believe we're already hearing accounts from PSWs that they're ready to walk off. The, the, the few that have been left behind, because keep in mind, staffing is at an all-time low in long-term care right now. And she yet conven- conveniently doesn't mention that. Or doesn't talk about how just because vaccinations have reduced the mortality, and thank God vaccinations work, it did nothing to improve on the negligence and the systemic flaws in this system. Nothing. Those remain. These residents are still confined for the most part. Still, many of them can't even go outside. To this day, their family are getting confusing directives that homes are making up on their own to this day because there's no accountability. There's no transparency. And she lets them do this. There's just no oversight i don't know what she is doing other than just focusing on building 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 new facilities while forgetting that you can build a thousand new fancy facilities but they're just going to have the same problems reoccurring in new facilities because you're not addressing the root causes i mean it's just astounding
0: it is. There was a report last week, of course, that staff are just walking away from the profession right now. Okay. Uh, we are, we hear some of the other ones that are staying are going back to working a second job now because they can't. You know, mm-hmm. The money is is no. Which is exactly one of the problems in the first place about about yes. community spread. Uh, Yet uh, the community. government's turning. They're they're turning their back on this. I mean, all yeah. the stuff that that was uh, you know participatory and, and and contributory to what went on, is is starting to happen again. I mean, you know, they just figure, okay, like, people are going to forget about this. Well, I don't think we are.
2: Oh, I certainly won't. No way. Um and the other thing I wanna point out is that the reason why they enabled because you know, they had that April second April twenty second directive limiting uh workers employed by homes. Keep in mind there was always a loophole allowing agency workers to go through multiple homes, which is also another reason why we never were able to really quash the outbreaks in the first and second wave, because they kept letting agency staff go to multiple facilities because staffing was so abysmal and they refused to do a staffing blitz like other provinces did. So the reason why they now are allowing staff to work in multiple facilities is precisely because staffing is at such an all-time low and on top of it that that announcement went hand in hand with the announcement that they're going to start transferring patients from the hospitals into long-term care so not only are you aware right because it's a tacit uh, you know awareness or admission that staffing is an all-time low if you're now letting them work at multiple facilities to help fill some of that gap while you're forcing them now to care for more residents when we already know the staffing ratios in these homes are abysmal i mean in a hospital you might have one to five in you know critical care units is usually like one to one one to two one to three and so on from care i mean one psw and we saw this in the report might be looking up to 40 50 60 residents i mean so not only are the residents already suffering from neglect because there's just not enough hands there's not enough feet on the floor but also now you're going to start transferring thousands of volts thousands more over it's a it's a mess it's a mess
0: and, and they point, I know Minister Fullerton brought this up again last week, uh, Doctor. You know, well, well our, our recruitment program, and they, they talk about the oh. money that they've committed to this and community colleges, and they're going to pay for the training, et cetera. Yep. Who's going to want to go there uh, <laughs> given Nobody. these conditions? As a matter of fact, one of the concerns that, that I've heard is that, yeah, they say the registration is is, is very go- going very, very well, but they're concerned okay. that a lot of people are going to take the course, get the certificate, Absolutely. and then leave, go someplace 100%. else to work
2: the best intentions are going to go into the into the job and exactly what is what has been happening for decades so this is the ludicrous part is that they go in there they see how terrible the conditions are there's no way they can properly provide care to the amount of residents they're tasked to observe and look over And, and then the pay is you know ludicrous so they always end up leaving it's a revolving door for these two root causes they refuse to fundamentally address So you will never, you can throw as many bursary programs to as many colleges as you want, but you're not going to attract and retain workers into long-term care. They're going to go somewhere else. And that is the sad truth. And she knows it. This government knows it. They all know it. They just don't want to spend the money to implement the permanent changes we so desperately need.
0: Uh, Frank Morocco, who is the uh, Associate Chief Justice of Superior Court, he was the uh, the head of this commission, also brought up, as you know, Vivian, uh, about the private versus public ownership, uh, indicating statistically Mm -hmm. there seems to be a concern with with the the ones that are owned. Well, he called them for-profit businesses uh, and questioning once again whether or not the care for the elderly should be a for-profit business. Are we ever going to have that debate?
2: I mean, it is the fundamental debate. When you look at... Why there is a revolving door, the low pay, focusing on, you know, they, they look at this historically, right? 20, 20 30 years ago, pre-Mike Harris, the man who started this disaster situation that has just snowballed since, um, we had the majority of nursing homes ha- working, staffed by nurses, right? A predominantly regulated, higher trained, higher paid workforce. Um, then all of a sudden we start, you know, going down this road of for profit. One of the ways you make profit, we all know this, any business person knows this, I learned this in Business 101, you, you create profit by cutting off staffing, right? So over the 20 years, you see that all of a sudden, the majority of nurses who once worked there are now the vast minority, and the majority are now an unregulated, unprofessionalized PSW workforce. These women are exploited. They are largely uh, racialized immigrant women, many of which are new to Canada, and are, are forced, frankly to put up with this nonsense because they don't have any other options. And they're trying their best and they are being exploited for their labor that is deemed you know, cheap and disposable, quite frankly. And this is exactly at the same time that the for-profit sector took hold and realized, let's make this more profitable. And indeed, over the last you know, year, we saw that the top three for-profit business chains, you know, I think it was Chartwell, Sienna, Extendicare, I believe, raked in 170 million in profits to their shareholders while at the same time taking in 140 million from government aid i mean instead of instead of putting that money into hiring more staff getting proper infection control managers in each home you you that off so you could go buy sports cars and yachts while people died from dehydration because that was another bombshell that was disclosed in this commission report, that the military, when they went in, and this wasn't in the initial military report, I, I, I was astounded when I read this, that they found, by the time they got there, because there was a delay in, in Fullerton getting them into these homes, a 12-day delay, we learned, that they, upon arrival, they found 26 people who had died from dehydration when all they needed was to be given water and to be pat down.
0: It's, it's, I mean, this, is, frightening. this
2: is atrocious, but and with... and not a word from our government, who had this information, who would have been breathing this. For for a year now, and nothing.
0: So we've got this. We've got the AG's report, uh, as you say, yes. the military report from last year. Uh, and, and by the way, especially with some of these for-profit businesses, what was just incredulous too is the story we saw a couple of weeks ago that a number of those boards of directors gave themselves bonuses last yeah. year. How could you look yeah, at yeah. the numbers? How yeah. could you look at the numbers that you just referenced and the stories of the people that were throwing up in their lockers and using plastic bags as PPE? Yeah. How could you, in good conscience, say I deserve a bonus?
2: Exactly. And they rated themselves perfect for consumer engagement. Uh, I mean, who did you survey yourself? Who was surveyed? Get out of here. Because the public was horrified with that report and all the other reports, we've been horrified from day one, seeing how they continued to rake in profits while people were dying because there weren't enough people in these homes to care for them, and they chose—that was a choice—to not engage in staffing blisses, to not hire proper infection prevention and control managers in their homes to make sure that the wide negligence that was reported that frankly caused many of these exploding outbreaks, and we saw that again last night in the, the tender care exposé from Global. They chose to just siphon those profits to shareholders. This model is a cancer. It needs to go. Until it does, we will continue to have these problems because their fiduciary responsibility is to get profit for their shareholders. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is not resident care. So people are, are frankly, insane if they think that retaining this model and expecting any some sort of alternative reality is going to happen. They're kidding themselves
0: why is it that this government and and frankly past governments too but i mean you know these are the guys in charge right now seem to look at long-term care as separate and apart from our health care system as, a, as opposed to being a major part of it i mean you know we, we spend an awful lot of time and money in primary care hospitals at beginning of life maintaining life at end of life we just kind of say you're on your own
2: yeah oh, well because unfortunately when the you know the last major edition of the la canada health act was created they Largely left out long-term care. They mentioned Mm -hmm. it, but they largely left it out, which was a big mistake. Which opened it up to privatization and opened it up to the problems we have right now. And and that you know, this was created at a time when there was stay-at-home housewives that did all this very difficult work for free, and and the governments were very lucky to have them doing this. This unpaid reserve army of reproductive laborers, as we refer to this in, in the academic literature. Um, but unfortunately, over the past twenty years, and the same problems, you know, hold for childcare. Uh, we did not, we did not do anything to properly account for the mass exodus of women from the home into the paid labor market. And women, although we still share, you know, shoulder the vast majority of the unpaid reproductive labor, women are can't keep working double, triple shifts because we're working, you know, more than ever before, and we're burning out. And this is why long-term care continues to grow, and we need. We will never not need long term care, not in this socio demographic landscape. So, you know, the, the last few governments have frankly just been uh, naive and complicit in not addressing, you know, that this is fundamentally a women's issue. And we are fundamentally letting down women, not only the women who care for these residents, but the vast majority of these residents, you know, around 70% in these homes are women because women live longer. Um, and it's just, They've all failed. They've all failed. I trust, trust me. I don't just, you know, lay the blame at the feet oh, of the Ford government. I, I go way back. I, you know, I, I, I'm very aware. Um, but you know, something that I do want to bring up that was missing. You got about thirty seconds. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I won't. I'll bring it up another time. Don't worry. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is not our last conversation about this because this. I hope more followed about this too. I, 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 as I've told you before, when this government actually even created a, a Ministry of Long Term Care, I thought maybe things are going to be different, but. Not yet, anyway. Uh, Doctor, as always, uh, please stay in touch, and uh, we'll continue to follow this story. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Always my pleasure, friend.
0: Take care. Dr. Virgine Stampinopoulos, of course, professor at Ontario Tech University, one of the co-founders of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's happening uh, economically. Of course, we know that last week uh, President Joe Biden uh, uh, acknowledged his first 100 days in office and addressed the joint session of the Congress as a result of this. But uh, trade and the impact it's going to have on the rest of the world and specifically on Canada – is a big part of what's going to be happening in the next little while. Mark Remillard has the details. In his first speech to Congress as president, Biden said the protectionist doctrine will be the guiding principle of his $2.2 trillion American Jobs Plan. Biden also says the rules, which have been the law of the land in the U.S. in various forms for nearly a century, do not violate existing trade agreements. Canadian suppliers and contractors have been anxiously watching developments on the Buy American file, hoping to avoid being cut out of a lucrative long-term effort to resurrect the U.S. economy. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. Well, they're calling it Bidenomics, and uh, it's certainly having an impact on America, but what is it going to do with Canada and the world? Let's bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation. Elliot, of course, is America's professor of political science at Carton University uh, with an uh, emphasis on U.S. politics. Uh, always a pleasure, Elliot. Hope you had a great weekend.
3: I did. I'm enjoying our sunshine and our spring.
0: Exactly. Uh, well, listen, let's talk a little bit about this. We talked last week about the, the first 100 days and, and uh, the, the, you know, the speech that he gave, of course, to the joint session basically outlining an awful lot of this. But he spent a good deal of time talking about his economic recovery plan. Uh, and uh, I, there's, there's a lot of money going to be on the table for this, which is highly unusual for, for American administrations to, to actually throw this kind of money into problems. Uh, what, what was your read on that and the impact it's going to have? Let's talk about the U.S. economy first. Well,
3: um, the interesting thing about Joe Biden is that he's very cleverly packaged what he's up to into separate individual components. And it was only at the informal State of the Union, his his address to Congress on his 100th day uh, in office, that you began to get a a more complete picture of really what he's up to. Because if you take a look, he he first talked about a rescue plan, and that was all about COVID. So a rescue yeah. plan is good packaging. Now he's going to talk about an infrastructure jobs plan. So it's not just you know we're going to build bridges. This is all about jobs. Now we're going to have a family plan, and but it's all about jobs. And incidentally, there's also a big social justice push uh, beyond that. So when you look at them individually, uh, well, there's a lot of money for this, a lot of money for that. But when you stand back, um, here were my three takeaways from the 100 days. And we can talk more specifically about some of the components. Mm-hmm. I, I think what has become clear now is, first of all, that Biden is really there to govern. Uh, he has a team that came in; they took over the government, and they plan to move. They plan to get things done for America. If possible, they will take a, a bipartisan route. But if that's not possible, they're just going to go ahead. Uh, there, this is this is a a, a let's get a hold of the problem and solve these problems and move forward with Republican help if possible, without it, if necessary. Uh, and the first thing they did was, you know, they really did get COVID in hand. I think you were the one who used the term something like they went from, from worst to best in a very short time, uh, mm. 200 million, over 200 million vaccinations within these 100 days. So uh, I think that's a very important way to, take a look at things. But the second thing here that he's doing is he's really uh, modernizing America in order to renew. He's, he's renewing America in order to allow America to lead. So if you take a look at the whole package, Bill, you, what you get is a sense that he is planning to renew America in a big way. It's, it's, it's the era of Eisenhower and, and also Roosevelt and also you know, all the reformers in history Uh, he's going to make America uh, renewed in a way that allows then uh, America to face a rising China. So this is a fight for the future, and he plans to get America in shape. He's modernizing the country in all kinds of ways. And I think my third takeaway was that, again, if you take a look at, and he said some of this uh, in his speech, you know, Um, Wall Street didn't build America. The middle class built America. Unions built the middle class. He's under a major, major overhaul of political, social, and economic power in America. I think he's trying to redistribute how power is exercised in America through this combination of plans.
0: Well, in, which is totally the reverse, of course, of, of the previous president. I mean, you know, because yeah. he, he didn't have a problem with the power being on Wall Street because that's where he was. I mean, that's that's he's one of those guys. Uh, it's a different mindset, technically. I saw a, a comment from a pundit like that I thought captured maybe the first hundred days, but especially the speech last week, too. They said that Joe Biden is not a very good orator, but he's a great communicator uh... And, and i there is a difference between the two and i think he showed that he he, he doesn't have the oratory skills of, of a, well, obama or even ronald reagan you know, who, who could wax poetically and, and just capture people but people relate to what he's saying and he, he it, it's the language it's the uh, the sincerity that i think that he he brings to this whole thing that, that that is helping him sell what he's doing
3: it's authenticity i think there's been a great um... urge for authenticity and a lot of people saw that in donald trump They didn't see him as a traditional Republican or as a traditional politician. They saw him as somebody who was speaking truth. And remember, he said, I will be your voice for people who were saying, nobody's been listening to us. Now he's listening to us. And they saw him as an authentic voice. Right now, that empathy and the lowering of the tone that comes with that that, uh, Biden approach really does seem to be resonating in America. And you can see that and the kind of support he's getting in the polls where um, I think perhaps we talked about it. You know, He promised to unify America, and he said under his speech, I, I am unifying America. Uh, if you take a look at what people say they like, if you take a look at these various components and the infrastructure and all across the board, uh, people like what I'm doing, including Republicans and independents. It's just these uh, elected Republicans who, who are standing in the way
0: well you saw that with the economic aid package of course uh, for the covid thing you know and you talked about trying to be bipartisan uh, he couldn't get any votes in the senate N- no republican supported the bill so uh, you know that that could have been uh, sending a signal that okay this is going to be tough he just said i don't care you know we're going to we're going to ram this thing through and we're going to do it uh, and he's doing things elliot within the guise of what you just described here that are totally different that what had probably 10 15 years ago uh, been characterized as radical moves about you know an extra tax on the rich and and social programs that, uh, you know, the Americans haven't really used a whole lot of in the last little while. That seemed to be something that was rather strange to them, and, and Biden's going to try to make that part of his foundation.
3: Yes, uh, that empathy that you just were, were referring to, that really came across in contrast to Donald Trump, uh, who, whatever else his strengths were, did not seem to radiate empathy uh, for others. Yes, he, um, he's, he's planning to be a transformative president at a time when everybody thought, Fact, he said, Maybe I'll I'll be a transitional president. I think he's a New Deal Democrat. He put a picture of FDR in the office right across from where he sits every day. Mm -hmm. And I I think that what we're really seeing now is how can I put this? There's two different visions of the past that have been on display in American politics. Donald Trump said, I will bring back a vision of the past. And it's where White people ruled comfortably, and you never had to worry about black people or others moving into your neighborhood. The borders will be secure. I'll keep you safe from these illegal aliens and you know all the other vocabulary he used. Uh, I'll make it a nice, safe white America. And it was really an ethnic populist approach. I'll bring you jobs, and your old-fashioned kind of jobs will come back. I'll see to that. But to what we have with the with joe biden is a different kind of nostalgia he's saying do you remember those times when america's governments played a big role in working with the people and getting things done we got that faced a crisis the second world war and fdr really reformed america in so many ways eisenhower came in and it was really a golden era he built the interstate highways uh he worked uh, across the aisle everybody liked it it was a great period of economic expansion, we can get that back again. And by the way, he's saying, um, and I think this hasn't gotten sufficient emphasis, we are also going to protect the future. What he's really talking about, I think, in this, what I was talking about, middle America, you know, modernizing America, uh, it's to clear the decks to get ready to face China. This is a battle for the future of the world, and America is going to lead that world. It's not going to be a Chinese century. Um, you don't ever bet against America, You'll, is what he said in his speech.
0: Well, and he, uh, he, you know, he kicked a couple of countries in the shins—Iran uh, and, and North Korea, specifically—that uh, hadn't received a whole lot of attention over the last little while. Basically, saying that you know what they're doing right now is a threat to U.S. Uh, you know security, uh, and uh, calling a shot here, I guess. And I know both governments have responded and said, you know, you can't do this to us. But he's, I guess, as, as you mentioned, trying to reassert America's position on, in the world order.
3: But he's doing so by renewing America at home. Yeah. Uh, we have to modernize America in order to face this kind of a world. Uh, but meanwhile, of course, we have to deal with the North Korea. We have to deal with Russia. We have to deal with China. And if you see them only in isolation, then I think you, you kind of miss the big picture that he's really up, uh, up to, uh, to getting America in ship shape, <laughs> so to speak, uh, at home. And that includes uh, racial justice, so that the Voting Rights Act and the uh, George Floyd Act those are also high on his agenda.
0: From an economic standpoint, though, talk to us about how that approach uh, is going to impact Canada U.S. relations economically and politically. I mean, I, I, I sense there's a great deal of synchronicity here because a lot of the stuff Biden's talking about is part of the Canadian fabric now. I mean, you know, the child tax benefit, of course, that came out of last uh, and programs of this nature. I mean, we seem to be going in that. As a matter of fact, I, I saw one column the other day that suggested Biden is probably going to outgreen Trudeau if he continues uh, with this aggressive approach right now. That remains to be seen, I guess, but they seem to be on the same page on a lot of issues.
3: Yes, I think um, we have (laughs) this slogan, build back better, which I always thought Mm -hmm. was kind of a lame slogan, uh, has Mm -hmm. been taken up by both countries. Of course, uh, Biden originated it, but we use it here. But I I think there's a difference in, in approach and a difference in emphasis for candidates, kind of build back better light. We have a decent system; it needs tweaking. We've got to shove a little here, and and we have to polish up there. We have to improve this program and that program. But for for Biden, uh, build back better means I'm going to move fast and I'm going to change America. Keeping in mind, he thinks he may have only a year and a half right now to get this done because in a year and a half are the midterm elections and Kevin McCarthy is the odds-on favorite to become the next Speaker of the House. It won't be Nancy Pelosi, the way things look. The Canadian approach is, we're basically all right. We're not going to borrow money. Uh, we're not going to tax in order to, to fix things. We'll just borrow some more money. Uh, Joe Biden is saying, no, I know how to fix this. We're going to do something really big. We're going to make over America. We're going to do it in time maybe to change the calculus for the midterm elections, so that maybe people will see that we're not feeding them Dr. Seuss. We're giving them checks in their pocket, Uh, you know, culture wars versus material benefit. So maybe he'll hold power. Whereas I think Canada in typical fashion is a much lower key approach, less dynamic. But then again, as America goes, you know, I won't say so goes Canada, but our economy, since you ask about that, to a political scientist, we're so intertwined, Bill, that if, America's economy comes rebounding, despite the the um, the I don't know isolationist approach, the buy America only approach, which is very very strong uh, for both Trump and and uh, Biden. If America is thriving, we are going to benefit economically broadly for goods mm-hmm. and services. But we do need to use the muscle that we developed uh, dealing with Donald Trump to prove to America how important we are to them economically we have to use that muscle now to get some car votes against this buy america approach
0: well, because one of the things he referenced the other day in the speech, and, and we've already talked about the fact that he wants to tax the wealthy and reform corporate taxes, as a matter of fact, to make sure that they pay their fair share, There's a phrase they use enough, But he's talking about economic growth to pay for an awful lot of this, and I know that's a, a lofty goal for any government right now, uh, but it's, it's one worthy, I think, of, of going after, to simply say, look, at, we're not going to put all the burden on you. As the economy improves, uh, everybody, you know, the old idea, but all ships rise in high tide. I think that's the approach they're taking right now, but uh, that, that's a tall order given what's going on with the pandemic right now.
3: Yes. The, um, I've been referring to this as a, a Janus moment, the Roman god of uh, you know, the, facing the past and facing the future. We are in a very strange, strange moment where the economy is, is poised to really boom ahead. Uh, it's already ticking up strongly in the U.S. and somewhat here. But at the same time, the pandemic, is we're in as worse a shape as we've ever been. So we are in a situation where, on the one hand, oh, look, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We've got this under control. The economy is poised to rebound in the United States, and with that, to some degree, will be Canada. But at the same time, we have to deal with a crisis, which is is not going away. So it's a very, very strange moment in time.
0: More to come on this, to be sure. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you again today.
3: Yes, take care, Bill.